And would you open your Bibles or a Bible to Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1020. And any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can go to Children's Church if they so desire. Luke chapter 5, and we're studying verses 33 to 39 this morning in our study of Luke. It's on page 1020 if you're using a pew Bible. I'd like to welcome you if this is your first Sunday with us. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke and have been in this book for several months and we'll probably be here several more. Today we come to chapter 5, verses 33 to 39, and Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. And Let me just read that text. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we love you. And as we gather here on this fourth Sunday of Advent to focus on your birth and your coming and what it all meant, we, uh, we gather around the manger as it were to worship you and to bow before you and to proclaim that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus, we marvel this time of year that you who are very God of very God, who are light of light, who are of nature God, would somehow encapsulate yourself in humanity and become a little baby. And Lord, we don't understand how that works. We don't understand how the infinite could become encapsulated within the finite, how the, um, the immortal could become mortal, how the Creator could somehow become creation. And yet, Lord, there's so many things about You we don't understand. You're so great and mysterious. And so we, we stand in awe around the manger. Not only that You could do it, but that You would do it. That You would come for sinners like us to save us. Lord, we, we worship You as the only true Savior and we humble ourselves before You here at the manger. But Lord, we know that this is a tough time of year for some people and um, we think of those shepherds out in the fields alone, keeping watch of their flocks by night. We know, Lord, that for many, Christmas is a time of loneliness. It's a time of separation. That for many, it's a time of depression. It's a time of uh, grieving lost loved ones. We know, Lord, that many of the people here in this room lost a loved one this year. This is the first Christmas without them, Lord, and it's a difficult time. And so, Lord, we we pray for, for them that you would comfort them, that you'd put your hands upon them. Pray for our sister Christine Hort as she lost a brother this week. And Lord, it's a crummy time of year to, to lose somebody. It's always a, a bad time, especially at Christmas. So Lord, we just pray your comfort on those for whom Christmas is a grieving time. And we pray, Lord, that your, 
your spirit might come upon them, just as the angels came to the shepherds in the wilderness. May you come and and show your glory to those who are hurting and needy this time of year. And Lord, we pray for those who are far away like the Magi, who are separated by thousands of miles from Bethlehem. And Lord, we all know people in our lives that we love, but they just seem like they're a million miles away from you. And Lord, we pray that just as the wise men saw a star, so that they too might see a light. And though they be far away, they might begin a long, arduous journey by your Spirit toward the light until they come to meet Christ themselves. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. Keep pulling us into the manger that we might come and worship you and love you. And be with us now as we study the Bible. We believe this is the Word of God. And so we come to it with great expectation that, God, your Word will speak to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. It was uh, 1944, near the end of World War II, and Lieutenant Hiru Onada of the Japanese Army was sent on a mission to a small island in the Philippines. And his mission was to conduct uh, guerrilla warfare against the Allied forces who had a base there in the Philippines. Uh, Well, the, the mission sort of went poorly, The Allies overran the island, and the Japanese garrison was driven back. And those Japanese soldiers who survived the onslaught uh, fell back into the the interior region of the island. They went to the mountains and the jungles, and and they broke up into cells of three or four soldiers each in order to conduct a guerrilla warfare uh, against uh, whatever Allied forces were there. Um, And and so this went on. But as you know, uh, shortly thereafter, the war ended. 1945, World War II came to an end. But nobody bothered to tell 2nd Lieutenant Hiru Onada that the war was over. And so he and his three fellow soldiers were there on the island. Uh, The first they got word of it was in October of 1945, that same year, where they found a little leaflet. You know, they fly over the jungle and they drop all these little leaflets and the war is over, you can come out. But, you know, some of the wording was a little weird and and it wasn't written in good Japanese. And so as as, uh, Onada and his three buddies scrutinized it, it just seemed sketchy to them. And they said, this this can't be right. And and so they decided that this must be an allied trick to get them to come out so they could capture them. And and so people would continue to try to reach out to these guys in the jungle. And, And I guess this went on for some time. They would uh, relatives who knew they were in the jungle would write letters and send pictures and they'd post them. And people would go around with bullhorns, it can come out, the war's over. And uh, search parties would go out, but of course the search parties had to be armed because these guys were armed. So Onada would shoot at them and then they would shoot back and that would just further convince them that it was still game on. And, and so they just were living, so they lived in the jungle. They were eating bananas, coconuts, every once in a while they'd poach a cow. And they, they would just live up there in, in the jungle. And, and so it went on and on. Uh, after five years of living in the jungle, one of the four snapped, and he said, I can't take it, and he left and went out. After ten years in the jungle, 1954, uh, another one of the fellows was killed in a skirmish with the local uh, Filipinos, uh, still thinking they were allied forces dressed up as as islanders. Uh, And so now it was just down to um, Onada and his buddy, and they were there together in the jungle for 27 years years conducting guerrilla war until his buddy was killed in another skirmish. And so it was just Onada, and he stayed in the jungle another three years. He didn't come out until 1974, 30 years after deployment, 29 years after the war had ended. And finally, you know, he caught up with the rest of the world and came out of the jungle and and surrendered his arms 
and was finally free. Today's story is an interesting story in the Gospel of Luke. On the surface, it's a story about fasting. Jesus and the Pharisees are kind of quibbling over whether or not they're fasting and should they fast. But but I think that really the, the fasting issue is just kind of a surface issue. There's really a deeper story taking place here. I think what this story is really about is the dramatic transformation in human history that takes place with the coming of Jesus. That as Jesus comes, it's like the end of World War II. There is now peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what the angels sang. There is now a new era that dawns with the coming of Jesus. Uh, We are the enemy combatants, and we're hiding in the caves and jungles. But now Christ has come, and so through Jesus, my sins can be forgiven, our lives can be reconciled to God, and through Jesus, I who was once an enemy can now come into a living relationship with the living Christ. That was the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. And so with the coming of Jesus, we have this massive shift in the the ages, this massive shift in the epochs. We go from something old into something radically different. I think that's what this story is really about at at the, the bottom level when you really dig into it. And it's also about our need, therefore, in response, to leave behind the old, the old sin and the old ways of relating to God that were marked by formalism and legalism and ritualism and to enter in to this living freedom with Christ of a real relationship with Him. Look at the story. and uh, It's an interesting one. Verse 33. They said to Him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. So here we have Jesus. He's at this party. If you were here last Sunday, you saw that Jesus was at this banquet that was thrown by all of these tax collectors and sinners. They threw this big party for Jesus. And so he's there. And the Pharisees have all these problems. You know, they're, they're bothered by the fact that, that Jesus uh, is eating with these kinds of people. And so he has to explain that. That was last Sunday. But they're also disturbed by the fact that he's eating and drinking so much. I mean, he's kind of, you know, this guy at this party. And, and he doesn't fast like they did. Now, you have to understand, fasting was uh, a vital part of Jewish spirituality. This was a very prized kind of ritual that was held in high esteem by the Jews. Uh, There's the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where Jews were supposed to all fast on that day. Uh, After the fall of Jerusalem, there were four days in the Jewish calendar set up uh, for fasting to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem and different events in that. So there four times in addition to Yom Kippur. Plus, if there were times of national crisis or need, they would fast. And um, the Pharisees took it to a new level. They fasted twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday, the Pharisees didn't eat. Instead, they would pray for God to bring his Messiah and release the nation from bondage. So, so fasting for them was just part of their DNA. I mean, this is fundamental. Seriously, spiritual people fast regularly. This is kind of how their mind worked. And then they see Jesus. He appears to be a man of God. He's doing miracles. He's teaching and and people are drawn to him. He has this amazing influence. But you know, the man parties a lot. In fact, I don't think we've seen him fast. Everywhere he goes, you know, he's, he's eating and drinking. And you want to know where Jesus is? Well, you know, listen for the party. He's probably there, you know, talking to people and socializing. And his disciples are eating and drinking. And you know, where's the asceticism? Where's the self-deprivation? And the Pharisees just, they don't have a box for this. And I was, I was kind of challenged by this as I was reading it. I said, is this my picture of Jesus? I think sometimes I, I have a picture of Jesus where he's very serious. He's very, very spiritual. 
And you know, he's really too spiritual to laugh because he's beyond that. Uh, jokes just aren't important to him. And, and you know, having fun and eating and drinking him, he's, he's so above that. He's so, you know, and I kind of have this severe, somber, hyper-spiritual vision of Jesus. But you know, what about this Jesus who, for whatever reason, is so magnetic that wherever he goes, all these people, and a lot of the bad people, just, whoop, they're drawn to him. And they've got to throw a party. And wherever he goes, they're throwing parties for him. And so, he, he, in fact, he gets a reputation for this. It's not just one story. But if you look later on in Luke, Jesus acknowledges that he has a reputation, at least among the Pharisees, as being a glutton and a drunkard, even though he wasn't, but that's how they labeled him, because you could always find him in these social gatherings, ministering to people. And so I wonder sometimes if, if I might not have a problem with this picture of Jesus, too, if I really saw him in action, caring for people and reaching out to them. So what gives Jesus? Why don't you fast? And Jesus gives the answer in verse 34. It's a question that needs to be answered. And his answer is so wonderful. In his typical pithy, parabolic fashion, he just says a one-liner and boom, nails it. Verse 34. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? That's a great answer. I'm so jealous because I I never come up with the one-liners. But he just has the one-liners. Boom. Just right like that. He just knows what to say. Uh, Probably helps being God. But, you know, I mean, he just always comes up with... (laughs) Just the right thing at the right moment. And, and he says, uh, you know, I'm the groom and the, the guests are here, so how can they fast? Like, oh, I get it. Jesus is the groom and, and this is a wedding that's going on around him, so to speak. I mean, you don't go to a wedding with a black veil over your face, you know, or a black armband around your suit and, and then go to the reception. And would you like, you know, one of these uh, nice, you know, those yummy warm scallops with the bacon around them. They serve it. Oh, I love those. And, you know, they come with a plate of those in front of you. And, and you know, would you like some? And, no, thanks. I'm, I'm fasting. That's a difficult time. It's like, what? You know, get out. This is a party. I mean, frankly, people, isn't that one of the best reasons to go to a wedding is the free food? I mean, let's, let's truly be honest here. Uh, it, it, you go to these weddings and you eat and you eat and you have a great celebration. And so Jesus just uses that analogy. Like, the groom is here. The wedding is on. We're not going to fast and mourn and be sorrowful. And, and I, was, I would say probably that was the thing that challenged me the most as I was personally just praying through this passage and reflecting on my own life this week. Is, is that characteristic of my relationship with Christ? Is there underneath it all a foundation of joy in Christ? Is the nub of my knowing Jesus ultimately a thankfulness and a joy for who He is and, and who He is in my life? Is, is the tone of my walk with God at any level like a wedding celebration? Right? Or do I just fall back into asceticism and rules and rituals and relate to God that way? And I'm not saying the Christian life is all smooth sailing. I mean, of course, we know it isn't. None of us has experienced this perfectly smooth life following Jesus. But, but even in the dark times, underneath it all, You know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There ought to be some kind of substructure of joy in Christ that that just keeps the whole thing alive, even in the darkest moments. You know, where is that joy of being around the groom? And am I coming to Christ as the groom and celebrating with Him? You know, all these kind of ideas. Jesus said, um, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And, you know, is that my experience to a degree? At a spiritual level, I mean, is, is that where I'm at? And so Christ says, look, that's who I am. I'm this groom. I'm this, 
this person who's come. But, but I think there's even more going on to it than just sort of a happy, upbeat sort of metaphor. I think when Jesus is talking about being the bridegroom, he's actually making an Old Testament reference as well. He's kind of speaking in code. So, so that people who are familiar with the Old Testament would have kind of picked up on this allusion. But, but what he's really, I think, alluding back to are all of the Old Testament promises about the future period of God's blessing and forgiveness and salvation, the Messianic age. And, and there's lots of metaphors to describe that future age in the Old Testament. But one of the metaphors is a wedding. And it happens in Isaiah 54, Isaiah chapter 62, Hosea chapter 2. You can look in Ezekiel 16 and other Jeremiah. There's this imagery of God as the groom, or the husband, and his people, his broken, sinful, wayward people as the, the maid or the maiden or the wife or the wayward wife or whatever, different kind of imagery there. And, and there's this idea that God is going to come and be reunited to his people and there's going to be a fresh era of forgiveness and joy and hope and all these kinds of things. And so I think when Jesus is talking about the bridegroom imagery, he's not just picking a happy image, although it is. But I think he's also communicating, look, the new era that we've all been waiting for, this new era that you Pharisees fast and pray for twice a week, is here. The new is here. And so, you know, why don't we fast? I mean, come on. This is the, this is the big celebration. You can't fast now. Jesus is here. And as long as he is here, there's no room for grieving and mourning and weeping as sort of a fundamental expression of faith. Now, is there room for fasting in Christianity? Of course. Look at verse 35. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. It's not wrong for Christians to fast. But but I think it's changed uh, from what it used to be before. Christians can fast, but there's not a requirement that they must fast. Fasting has changed. It's not a fundamental uh, required sort of pathway in a relationship with God. It's just kind of, well, you can do it or you can't do it. But really, it's about Jesus. That's the point. And so even fasting has changed. We know in the New Testament later on, the church does fast at different times. But, but it doesn't, it's never commanded. It's never commanded like on Yom Kippur, you must fast on this day. And so even fasting has changed because Jesus is here. And I think that's really what Jesus wants to get at. And if you look at verses 36 to 39, Jesus now uses the fasting discussion as a jumping off point to talk about this bigger issue. This kind of end of World War II, the beginning of peace, massive shift in our relationship with God and human history kind of thing. What we call redemptive history. That something has changed in the history of God's redemptive plans. Now Jesus is here. And so when the new is here, you don't need the old because the new has come. In fact, the new is so dramatic and so wonderful that, that not only does it fulfill the old, but in a sense renders the old obsolete. Um, and, and that's what Jesus gets at. Look at verses 36 to 38. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the old will not match. The patch from the new will not match the old. And the second analogy. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And I think what Jesus is talking about is with his coming, he fulfills all of the longings and institutions and practices of the Old Testament and of Judaism. And he fulfills them so fully, which is, this is kind of the irony, 
that he then renders them obsolete as the necessary pathways to approaching God. So isn't it kind of interesting that all of those things in the Old Testament are pointing to him. They're all leading up to him. He fulfills them, but in fulfilling them, he's so great that he, those old things can't contain him, which is just an interesting paradox. So, so it's not anti-Old Testament, but at the same time it kind of is. So he, it's, it's continuity, but it's also discontinuity. Uh, and Jesus fulfills it. Like, so for instance, fasting, right? Fasting was an important way of approaching God. It was one of the important rituals. But what were they fasting for? Ultimately, it was for the coming of God. Well, God's here. And so you don't have to do that. I mean, you can if you want, but it's not, it's not a central part of piety. Or, or take some other Old Testament practices. What about keeping kosher? Kosher laws, right? You know, why did God give the Jews kosher laws? And it's not because he wanted them to stay away from pork because pork's bad for you. <laughs> That's not the point. It's not a health issue. The, the reason the kosher laws were there was to communicate through food the spiritual truth that we need to be separate and holy and pure. And, and so you kept these food laws to kind of reinforce the idea of we are God's special people. We need to be morally pure. But with the coming of Jesus... He's made us pure through His blood on the cross. And so all of those prefigurements are fulfilled in Him. So now the food laws are not important. I mean, if you want to keep kosher, that's fine. And if you don't, that's fine. But you know, (laughs) whatever. It's up to each person. The important thing is Jesus. We have the fulfillment in Christ. Or circumcision, same thing. What was circumcision pointing to? It was pointing to the need for our hearts to be circumcised, to have sin cut away from our hearts and to have our hearts changed. And with the coming of Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, that's taken place. So, you know, Paul in the New Testament is like, well, you know, circumcision, uncircumcision, who cares, whatever. Which is a radical thing for a Jew to say. But because Jesus has come, we have Jesus, we don't need the signs. And you can use them or not use them, but it's not important. Or what about, you know, just not to belabor the point here, what about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? In all the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals as part of worship to show that when you sinned, there was a death penalty on sin. And so, animals were sacrificed to show that every time I sin, there has to be death. But why don't we sacrifice animals today? How come at the end of the service, we don't bring a little goat out and, you know, and uh, let's sing a closing hymn. Whack! You know, I mean, sorry to any animal lovers here, but that was just part of what they did. That, That was part of their worship back then. Well, it's because Jesus has come as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So, he's fulfilled it and thus rendered it obsolete. Anyone here seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe yet? It's really good. It's not Lord of the Rings good, but it's, it's very good, I have to say. Um, very good movie. They did a good job with it. They were very faithful to Lewis's vision, I thought. I was, I was very moved by it. Uh, and you know, the famous scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when Aslan, the lion, who is uh, a symbol of Christ, contrary to what some people may say in the media, he actually is a symbol of Christ. And he was, he's sacrificed. He, he's killed on this big stone table. And his life is sacrificed so that a human boy named Edmund, who had committed treachery, can go free. So he's killed so that, As- so that uh, Edmund can be forgiven. And so they kill Aslan the lion, and then, of course, he rises from the dead. Uh, and and you know the sto- if you know the story, when he rises from the dead, it's interesting, that stone table that he had been sacrificed on cracks. Boom! There's like a big earthquake, and boom, it breaks open and falls apart. And, you know, what's it all about? And I think there's all kinds of biblical imagery sort of woven in there. Certainly the tomb... Breaking open is kind of part of the imagery. Um, maybe there's the temple curtain being torn. You see that. But, but I think another one is the idea that the old law, the stone tablets, are broken. It's completed. And so we're free. 
We're free from the law in the sense of approaching God through rituals and formulas and legalism. And I've got to fast on Monday and Thursday. And if I don't fast on Monday and Thursday, God's going to be mad at me. And so I have to you know, keep all of these rigid requirements. And no, no, no. The way we approach God is through a living relationship with the living Christ. Now, caveat. Does that mean, therefore, as Christians, we have no rules or laws applying to us? Of course not. There is the law of Christ. But the law of Christ is so much more focused on loving you and you loving me and us being humble before one another and us caring for one another and us meeting the needs of others around us. It's so much more social and relational and it's about holiness. And the law of Christ is not so much focused on all of the rituals that were pointing forward to Jesus. And I think the other main difference is that with the coming of Jesus, the law of God is now written on our hearts. So yeah, God has things He still expects of me, but it's not about Jeremy trying hard to make all the rules work. It's about Jesus living in me through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit enabling me from the inside out, not the outside in, to keep God's laws. And so this is a wonderful new day. That's why you don't fast, because the new has come. And in a sense, the new replaces the old. So therefore, going back to the text, the new and the old are, in a sense, therefore incompatible. And he uses these analogies. There's the garment, right? If you have an old garment with a hole in it, you don't go to your new garment you got from Neiman Marcus, rip it, and sew it on the old. Because then you ruin the new one, and then the old one looks stupid because it's got a patch on it that doesn't match. Right? It's just so. And then the other one is wineskins. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. Uh, wineskins were made from skins. They're taken from animals. They'd, you know, take the hide off the animal and clean it and prepare it. And, and, you know, an animal skin, when you first prepare it, is very soft and flexible. But if you leave it out for a while, it'll dry and get really hard and crusty and all that. So the problem is, if you take new wine, which is wine from this year's grape harvest, old wine would be wine from previous year's grape harvest. You take new wine, you pour it in that wineskin. Well, new wine still has a little more fermenting to do. It's not all done. So what will happen is it will sit in the wineskin and the, you know, the fermentation process will take place and the gas bubbles will be released. And so you need a wineskin that's got some give to it so that as the you know, thing fills up with gases, it can stretch. So if you put it in the old wineskin that's all brittle and hard, the gas is going to just pop it. Then you're going to lose both the new wine and the wineskin. So again, the, the idea is the incompatibility. With the coming of Christ, His gospel is so wonderful. His truth is so great that it cannot be contained within the forms and structures of ritualism and formalism and legalism, whether Old Testament or Pharisaically created or the ones that we create today. And I think that where we struggle as human beings is that we're like Onada in the jungle. We want to stay in the caves and in the asceticism and in the rigidness of warfare kind of mindset and you know this is how you please God you do this this and this and this and, and it's hard for us to move into this new era of relating to God through a living relationship with Jesus I mean for some of us it just sounds so foreign like what does that mean what, what is that you're talking about because again our tendency is to relate to God through ritualism it was the problem in the early church book of Acts you know the story the gospel goes out all these Jewish people are becoming Christians and then what happened the Gentiles started becoming Christians. And the church said, whoa, what do we do here? Got all these Gentiles becoming Christians. Huh. Well, uh, they believe in Jesus, but do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep kosher? Do they need to keep the Sabbath days? Hmm. And so they had this big council, and some people were like, yeah, they need to. And other people were like, no, they weren't. And, and God led the church to say, no, 
They don't have to do that. They just have to have Christ. They can if they want, but it's not important. It's Christ that matters. Or, or fast forward uh, uh, in church history to a time in the Middle Ages when the church had become very ritualized in its worship, but incredibly formalized, uh, so that for a person to relate to God, there were pilgrimages that had to be done. There were indulgences that had to be paid. There were all these rituals and sacraments. And In fact, they couldn't even hear the Bible because it was in Latin, and the priests only spoke in Latin, and nobody spoke Latin except the priests. So here's the poor people in the pews, you know, sitting there. <laughs> Can't understand what's going on in the service. They've got to have paintings on the walls so that they can understand the Bible stories. Uh, and they're just kept in ignorance. And then, and then this, the, this theologian who taught at uh, Cambridge uh, stands up, John Wycliffe. And then this priest named John Huss stands up. And this monk named Martin Luther stands up. And all these different guys stand up in the church and they go, time out. We're reading the Bible here and, and we see that the way to relate to God is through faith in Christ and not through all these rituals and structures and programs. And so the Reformation was born. Or you fast forward to our day. And I think even today, our tendency, even if we don't know anything about Judaism, our tendency is to relapse into a kind of Pharisaic ritualism and formalism. It's just human nature. I think many of us here were raised in religious backgrounds. Uh, Some of you were dragged to church as a kid. Uh, Maybe it was Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or Unitarian or whatever, but you, you were taken to church as a kid. Some of you were christened as an infant. Some of you were dedicated as an infant. Some of you went to... Christian school growing up, CCD or Sunday school or vacation Bible school or temple school or whatever, and your parents made you go to those things. And uh, some of us had really lax religious parents or whatever, um, you know, C&E Christians, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> Only time they show up in church and then they're kind of gone. Uh, maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you're a C&E Christian. I don't want to offend you. But um, we're glad you're here. Um, come back next week and the week after, too. Uh, and some of us had really stringent religious parents, right? You had parents, some of you had raised in really stringent Catholic homes where, boy, you had to make your first confession and there was no meat on Fridays and it was the whole nine yards. Some of you were raised in really stringent Protestant fundamentalist homes where it was like you go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night Bible study, a youth group, Bible study, and you, you know, no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no fun, no smiling, you know, the whole thing. And... It, you know, that was your kind of background. It's, it's, so we all kind of come out of this... I mean, there might be a few of us here who are raised totally secular, but I'd say most of us here have some religious upbringing. And yet it's possible to come out of all of that religious-osity and not know Jesus. It's like, what was the point of it all? If we come out of it and we don't have a living relationship with our Savior, what was the point of it all? I was talking to a lady uh, earlier this year, and she knew I was a pastor. And so I, I asked her, you know, where, we, somehow we got on the topic of church and where she goes to church. And I said, I said, oh, do you, you know, so that's where you go to church. Do you, do you enjoy it? Do you, do, you get, do you get something out of it? She said, actually, I don't get anything out of it. She says, actually, the only thing I get out of it is sort of what I bring to it. I was like, oh. And I didn't want to be rude, but I was like, so why do you go? And she said, well, it's important to my husband because he was you know, raised in this specific church and, and it's important that our kids you know, are raised this way. And I said, oh. I said, well, so your kids go to the religious education there? She said, yeah. And I said, well, do your kids enjoy it? Do they get something out of it? And she said, no kids enjoy it. <laughs> no kids get anything out of it. And I'm just like, so why do you go? 
But I think, I know why. She goes because the same reason that I am religious. and Because our tendency as human beings is to go back in the jungle of religion as formalism, ritualism, doing the laws. And please don't get me wrong. I am not against liturgy or beautiful forms at all. But the point is, if you don't have Jesus, it's dead. It's dead without Jesus. That's the point. And if you come out of it without Jesus, it's like, you know, coming out of the whole thing and you miss the whole thing you're supposed to get. And it's all just kind of dead religion because it's about knowing and loving Christ. And so we need to come out of those jungles, both if you've never known Christ, and I think even for us who are Christians, who do know Jesus, how easy is it for me to slip into a kind of Christianity that's very dry and very habitual and very routine-oriented, and I lose what the Bible calls the joy of my salvation, the joy of being in a vibrant, ongoing relationship with Christ. Not that life is perfect or that it's all based on happy emotions, but underneath it all, there's this life of Christ within me. And I want to stay there, and I want to live in that. I want to come out of the jungle like Onada did. He actually did come out of the jungle, as I said, 30 years after being uh, there, 1974. As the story goes, uh, I guess it's interesting, there was a high school dropout. It was rather a college dropout from Japan. And he told his parents he didn't want to go to college. And he wrote them a letter saying he was going on a quest. And he was going to find a panda. He was going to find the abominable snowman. And he was going to find... Hiro Onada. That was his quest. Because I guess people still, there's this legend that he was out there. Except he actually found Hiro Onada. He went to the island, found him, said, look, the war's over, and I guess he didn't get shot by Hiro. And Hiro said, well, um, you know, if this is true, you need to go back to Japan, get my commanding officer, and if my CO will come and give the order, then I'll believe you. So he went back to Japan, tracked the guy down, brought him back to the island, and, you know, he came and said, look... I'm sorry, I didn't tell you before, but it's over. It, you know, the war is over. And, and there's this description of, uh, that Hiro gives of what that was like. He says, suddenly everything went black. <laughs> yeah. He said, a storm raged inside me. I felt like a fool for having been so tense and cautious on the way to the meeting. Worse than that, what had I been doing for all these years? Gradually, the storm subsided, and for the first time, I really understood. My 30 years as a guerrilla fighter for the Japanese army were abruptly finished. This was the end. I pulled back the bolt of my rifle and unloaded the bullets. I eased off the pack that I was always carried with me and laid the gun on top of it. Would I really have no more use for this rifle that I had polished and cared for like a baby all these years? And he went home and... Uh, the uh, Filipino government forgave him for his crimes against killing Filipinos, and uh, he was sort of pardoned, and he went back to Japan where he was hailed as a hero. I guess it was like a national event, and, and then he bought a ranch in Brazil and he lived happily ever after. So I, that's <laughs> the story. <laughs> um, it's a true story. And I think, what a picture of us and our need to come out of the old and into the new in Christ, and how ridiculous it is that we're there. You know, God's dropping leaflets. There's one in front of you in the pew rag. He's been telling us that the Messiah is here. He's been sending people to you. You know, that, that annoying person who keeps telling you about Jesus and you're getting so sick of them. Well, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe you need to come out of the jungle and come into this life of freedom and joy of following Jesus and having your sins forgiven and having a new life in Christ.
Bottom line, don't die in the jungle. Come out now. Why wait? It's stupid to die in the jungle. Come out. Because Christ is here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You that You are so new and so great and so wonderful that nothing that we have known before, religious or otherwise, can contain You. Lord Jesus, we want that. We want, we want that One who cannot be contained and who cannot be codified into a set of observable rules. We want to know You, that, that uh, Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia who was good but not tame, a lion who is to be loved but also feared and in awe, we want to stand in awe of You, Christ, who is so alive and great and wonderful. And Lord, we confess to You that uh, we continue to go back to old ways and old habits and even old religious patterns that, that don't have You in them. And that we look to the things of this world and our old behaviors to give us happiness, and they never do on a permanent basis. And Lord, we want to enter into the new that You have for us. I pray, Lord, that You'd forgive us our sins and that You might draw us to Yourself and and I pray, God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Jesus, that you yourself would just show yourself to them. Because ultimately, we need the commanding officer to come in and say it's over. And that's you, Jesus. And so would you come into each of our hearts and keep calling us to yourself so that we might enjoy the, the, good of, the goodness of the new and the blessings you have for us. So, Lord Jesus, bless us this Christmas. Pray that on Christmas Eve, on Saturday night, that it would just be a great time of worship, that many might come to hear about the Savior. And Lord, bless us on Christmas Sunday, the 25th, when we gather here to celebrate you at our church services, just to worship you then. Lord, help us to see Christ in Christmas. And we pray all this in His name. Amen.